Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, we speak with Thomas DeVere Woolsey, who teaches at the American University in Cairo and leads professional development sessions for teachers all around the world. Dr. Woolsey is the co-author of Assessment Literacy, an Educator's Guide to Understanding Assessment K-12, which will be coming out soon. We talk about more humane and productive ways to engage in assessment literacy practices in the reading and writing classroom. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we get to speak with Thomas DeVere Woolsey, who is currently at the American University in Cairo, Egypt, and he leads professional development all around the world. He's an author and a former high school teacher and an expert in assessment, digital literacy, and writing instruction. Welcome. Thanks, Troy. Appreciate being, uh, having the opportunity to be on your show. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time. I know with time zones, you're making an extra late night of being here, and I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the work that we're going to get to do together um, at the ILA conference in New Orleans in a few weeks. So as we dive in, I'm really curious to hear a bit more about uh, your journey as an educator. What has your path been uh, to bring you to where you are now? And, and what does day-to-day life look like if, if there is any normal day-to-day life in your consulting and teaching world? <laughs> that's, that's kind of a good point. I don't know if there is such a thing as a normal day, but that's the fun of teaching. There's always something new, something interesting something to explore, uh, to help a student to understand something that they didn't understand before, or feel more competent or more uh, secure in their own learning as we move forward. Um, I probably have teaching in my blood. My great aunt, uh, Sarah, was a teacher. She was an English teacher. I always loved talking to her about teaching. Uh, My uh, great uncle, Heber, was also a teacher. They could recite. Shakespeare and Chaucer, just anybody, anybody you mentioned, they could recite that. I remember that when I was a kid, that that was something that they, that they liked. Uh, so probably it was inevitable that like them and other relatives, I went into teaching as well. Uh, by the way, I was teaching, uh, I spent most of my teaching at middle school rather than at uh, high school, though I've done that too. Uh, Okay. I began my career as a middle school language arts teacher, too, so I can certainly understand that. And then you did some of your graduate work in San Diego. Um, Tell us a little bit more about your pathway uh, through graduate school and how that's brought you forward to where you're at right now. At San Diego, uh, one of the things that was a a big advantage was that it was relatively close to where I worked, uh, about an hour away. And so it was easy to get to the universities there. It was a joint program at San Diego State University and University of San Diego. So we had the best of both worlds all in one program there. The uh, reason that I went into the program in the first place was I have a terrific mentor. Her name is Dana Grisham. If you know her, or I'm sure many of the listeners also know Dr. Dana Grisham. Uh, She was at San Diego State at the time, and she said, you need to come do this. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. And she said, no, you really need to come do this. And I did. And now look where I am here in Egypt. That's amazing. And so you do a lot of continued consulting and work all around the world, including 
work with Dana. You are currently working on a book project uh, related to assessment, which can be a challenge for many teachers for a variety of reasons. And so you've been doing lots of thinking about this. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current thinking and work around assessment, especially as it relates to writing? Uh, yeah. Maybe succinctly, I could say that I think that a lot of the discussion about assessment has been uh, co-opted, shall we say, by voices that aren't in the classroom. One of the most personal things a person can do is write. It's putting yourself on display, your ability to use language, your, your vocabulary, the size of your vocabulary, the types of words that you use. You put your thoughts and feelings into a lot of the work, even if it's informational, there's still a bit of you in that bit of writing. And you just have to throw that out there into, into, the, uh, um, into the abyss and hope somebody will want to read that. And at the same time, you risk having somebody judge what you have written. So it's a very difficult and challenging uh, task to teach people to, to write. And it also means, to me, that the assessment has to be just so. Somebody else's rubric, somebody else's uh, metric for writing that is not in my classroom is probably not going to be what a middle school student, for example, wants to hear. They don't know those people. They depend on the relationship with the teacher that they trust to give them feedback and guidance. And you can't always capture that with a metric, with a rubric, with numbers, with a, with a grade. You need a lot of interaction to be a good writer. Hmm. I, I want to hear more about that. And it connects to something that you have put early in the book, which is the, the root of the word assess, which actually means to sit beside. And I think that that is uh, maybe part of the overall philosophy you're trying to describe here. So could could you tell us in a little more detail then, what, what would this uh, very generative, productive kind of assessment look like and feel like? And, and perhaps let's imagine we're in a middle school uh, language arts classroom. What are some of the things we would expect to see uh, teachers and students doing uh, when they're enacting assessment in this way? Yeah, first, I think that the assessment needs to be not just something at the end. And I think most teachers agree that this is uh, just giving it us an assessment at the end. Here's your letter grade. You earned a B. Let's move on. That actually writing in our 21st century classrooms in 2019 looks a little more interactive. It looks a little more like the kinds of writing that we do outside the school walls. I never like to say in the, in, uh, outside the trenches or in the real world because schools are real places and they're certainly not trenches. They're places where, when it's done right, where uh, vibrant learning occurs. And this needs to be reflected in our assessment practices. There's, of course, uh, an important role for many of the types of practice uh, assessment that we do that's large scale, that may even contain uh, uh, high stakes uh, consequences or rewards. But the real assessment comes when it promotes actual learning, when students can listen to the teacher and their peers and provide information that's useful. Assessment needs to be useful. It needs to be something that a student can listen to this and say, ah, I know what I did well now. 
often we think, okay, we need to praise our students, and we do, but just telling students that good job on this paper is really not helpful. It makes you feel good, but it's not helpful because you don't know what is good. So we want to establish a climate where there are relationships where students and teachers trust each other to provide feedback, and we, we put together the, the culture of the classroom such that that can happen. Absolutely. One of the things that Dana and I did some years ago was compare how graduate students in a master's, master's of education program and the eighth graders that we were working with evaluated their work. And it turned out that though the master's candidates had slightly more sophisticated vocabulary, they all knew what their good writing ought to look like. They could... Mm -hmm. Graders could tell us what they thought a good writing piece should be. I don't remember exactly what it was we were evaluating. I think it was a literature response, actually, at that time. The, the teachers knew, the students knew, and so we didn't have to tell them, here it is on a rubric. Instead, they could tell us what they think needed to be criteria for evaluating or assessing a given piece of work. It was really a fascinating idea because we've taken this in other directions now. Um, the idea that maybe students can do a good job of evaluating their own work or self-assessing their own work. I don't always mean evaluation here in this case, but the assessing their work to improve it. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing, you know, you're making me think about some of my current classroom practices, and I'm in a role, too, where I'm teaching undergraduate and graduate students and I feel like I, even though I'm not teaching writing classes per se at the moment, one of the things that I do teach often are writing intensive courses at the undergraduate level and then graduate level courses are writing intensive by their very nature. So I've moved to an assessment practice where about half of the assignments are a pass fail. Hey, do something substantive. I am not going to nitpick and critique every single little bullet point and APA style issue. And as long as you do something substantive, you're going to get full credit. If I don't feel it's substantive, I'm going to ask you to redo it. Then the other half of the assignments seem to be more of the, yep, here's a traditional rubric. Here are the things I'm looking for. Here, if you made a mistake, is a place to revise. That's been my compromise. I, I am curious to hear from you and what you've experienced and what you've seen. How are other teachers dealing with this sticky problem? How are we, how are we adapting our assessment practices to be more humane and, and more um, productive? And this is one of the things that we explore that uh, Dana and also Dr. Sue Lenski and I explore in the upcoming assessment literacy book that uh, Assessment's really only effective for learning, for learning, if the students believe that they can, uh, they can use that information to improve their performance. And if we introduce uh, high stakes, if we hand back papers that are covered with red or whatever color pen or highlighter you use, then it's overwhelming. And they anxiety and they don't want to or can't sort through all of the, the messages. So what we need is, uh, I think, to start going back to the idea that the teacher in the classroom is in the very best position to make the decisions. The only place where you can really affect what students do isn't homework, which we're finding is not really that productive a use of time anyway. 
if I'm going to have students write, they need to be writing in the classroom where they can talk to each other, where they can share ideas with me, where I can move from one student to another and say, I really like what you've done here and show them exactly what that is. And here is a possible scenario where you might do something different, maybe not better, maybe better, but maybe not, but at least different. Here's another thought for you to consider and then move on. And then students start to realize that you really are there as their guide, as their reader, as their mentor, and as their teacher, rather than just the person who gives them a grade. Recently, recently, like in yesterday, I um, gave my undergraduates an assignment. It was not a writing assignment, but I want them to create an educational game for a class that we explore how education looks in the world beyond, within and beyond schools. How do businesses use educational techniques and learning theories and so forth? So I wanted them to create a game, provided them with some different tools. They all know games, so we talked about this. What makes a game effective? They created their own rubrics because they already know, I just have to focus their attention on it. And I found that they were far more engaged because they got to determine what features of games will result in good learning. That's pretty amazing to think about just those small tweaks and changes that we can make in our teaching practice to open up those possibilities. And, and something you said just a moment ago that you know, if the assessment is not helpful in moving them towards improving their performance and it's mostly seen as punitive, then of course uh, it's not really going to be all that helpful. So you also mentioned that, you know, it's most helpful to have teachers in the classroom giving that immediate feedback, which I completely agree. And yet we all know that that is quite literally impossible uh, to give every kid the kind of feedback that they need at the moment. What are some other teaching practices or maybe even some technologies that you might suggest for educators and especially writing teachers as they think about that process of giving feedback that is timely and goal-oriented and moving students forward with their writing? Yeah, I think on, on that particular issue, one of the things that we do is start to develop expertise within the classroom. Okay, I'm the teacher and theoretically I know quite a few things about writing in a class that uses writing uh, or whatever the discipline is that depends upon writing and most of them do. Um, but I'm not the only one in the classroom who has expertise. I think that the students need to come to the understanding that some of them have particular skill in uh, working with spelling, for example. Maybe it's not your strength, but you know who does. Uh, that's a surface feature, of course, or somebody else has some background knowledge and some content knowledge that maybe you should go talk to that person in order to learn a little bit more about your topic. Maybe somebody else can tell you how to structure an argument so that it's successful how they've done it, so that you've got multiple points of view and start to create this classroom of writers, whether you're teaching a science class that writes or uh, social studies class, a history class where writing is hopefully integral, or a traditional English language arts class where students are going to be writing both creatively, informatively, expository, all of these sorts of types of things. There are other experts in the classroom. And you mentioned tools. The uh, notion of the six degrees of separation, you know, the game with Kevin Bacon, mm -hmm. that's a real, real theory of uh, real network theory that suggests that the small world connections we make are really uh, 
powerful, really useful. You can reach out to just about anybody these days, and if you can get their attention, they're probably going to respond. And we've done that with uh, um, some of our projects with uh, Diane Lapp at San Diego State and I have been doing this with some of our colleagues where we simply reach out to people who are engineers, who are doctors, who are uh, technicians in, in uh, Hollywood production, where they get to talk about the things that they do that are literate in nature, that are writing, mm -hmm. be speaking about the importance of precision in some, uh, about the different ways that different professions look at accuracy. And we think that students can do this too. Why can't they? Why can't they reach out to a scientist at NASA? They should. Right, and, per, and per just providing them with that vision of being able to do that. I mean, sometime, I, I know you said a moment ago that school, we shouldn't look at schools as inauthentic places, and yet we know um, so my colleague Ann uh, Whitney likes to say there is a schoolishness about schools that sometimes <laughs> prevents us from seeing those possibilities. So yeah, I totally agree. We want we want to push them to recognize their own experiences and what they bring to the classroom as students, and then also pushing beyond the classroom too. So are there any particular ways in which you encourage teachers and students to provide feedback? I mean, the classic example being that Google Docs offers commenting and we can at least have some sustained conversation about a piece of writing outside of class time. Or are there any other technologies that have been on your radar recently or tools that you think are particularly helpful? I think, uh the increasing possibility of students, <clears throat> excuse me, of students actually being able to publish via uh, blogging platforms and so on is really helpful because it's one thing for, say, an eighth grader to read something by Ernest Hemingway and think, well, <laughs> I'm no Ernest Hemingway. And mm -hmm. so why should I try to write like that? Or why would I try to write like a, a sports journalist if I'm into sports or what, what have you? Those are professionals. When students have good models of student writing, I think that this can show them that there is uh, strength in their own words and that it's something that's something to which they can aspire. Um, I really am impressed lately with the, uh, the students from Florida who are speaking up about gun violence, about Greta Thornburg, who is speaking up about climate change and saying, you know, maybe I am 16, but that doesn't mean I don't have a voice and that I won't use it. And mm. I think students need to see that they are part of a larger community and that there are people who will listen to them if they just take that risk to put their words, written words, of course, for this podcast, but uh, spoken words as well out there. But they also have to be informed. And this is where I think it's really important that we don't just say to provide feedback, but that students know how to provide effective feedback. As a teacher, we would know, I would know, you would know how to provide effective feedback. We know that uh, it can't all be corrective, for example, but sometimes students do what uh, uh, teachers try not to do and provide surface information. Uh, this citation is missing. You need to, to uh, make this paragraph longer, but this is not really useful. So we need to teach students how to give useful feedback just as we would as teachers. And that has to be modeled. They have to have sources to drop on for what effective feedback would look like, and they need to be able to practice doing so. Well, they absolutely do. And I, I don't know if you have any uh, particular strategies or heuristics or uh, 
acronyms or anything that you typically use to, to help them with that? Is there any particular go-to uh, strategy that you, you rely on to help students think about providing more effective feedback uh, for one another? I think it depends a little bit on the, uh, the context of what the writing, the context itself within the classroom and um, how much students have read, you know, how much they read has a big effect on how well they write. They're not mirror processes, but if you're not a very avid reader, you, you won't be a very proficient writer in, in most cases. Uh, just That's a generalization, of course, but I think that this is, this is true, that students need to read a lot of material, and that has to be something that's done in the classroom, not just assigned as homework, and hopefully they did it for the quiz, but because they get involved and invested in this idea that, they can have a voice and others also have a voice. Let's see how they did, how they, these other others have constructed a message. So for example, if we're going to work on writing an effective lead, this is something, a lead or an introduction, that they need to see multiple examples of that from professional writers, from other student writers they don't know and from each other. And they need to be able to talk usefully about what a good effective lead-in would be. Is it going to start with an anecdote, with an interesting fact, uh, with some sort of a surprise uh, introduction that did you know, A, B, or C, uh, sort of thing. That There's a hook in there somewhere that will make people want to read this. And then they have the information they need because they've seen these sorts of examples of an effective intro and they can provide feedback. What if you did this instead of that? Would that hook your audience better? Absolutely. I mean, I hear kind of two overlapping things. We need to encourage students to read and read widely. And then we also need to encourage them to read like writers. So they start to see those strategies in action and then can speak knowledgeably, not only about the content, but also about the strategies as they're looking at their own work and as they're providing feedback to one another. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's all generative in this way that there's no one element that makes uh, that makes the, the, the writing classroom successful. It has to be all of these things. Certainly, certainly. Well, in in this idea of kind of a strategic approach and thinking about the ways in which you would you would welcome students to do these kinds of reading and writing skills. One of the other um, items mentioned in the book and is also on your blog is um, a strategy you say, read up, ask around, and double check. And in our continued world of uh, challenging, uh, I, I hate to even, I hesitate to even use the term, but I'll say it in the, in the world of fake news and whatnot, um, <laughs> it, seemed, it seems to me that this is always a challenge. And so can you Tell us just a little bit about this strategy of reading up, asking around, and double-checking. One of the, the stories that, uh, it's actually a memoir that was written by Adora Welty some time ago, where she was writing about this very topic. She had written a, a work of fiction, but in her work of fiction, the moon rose in the west instead of in the east. It wasn't intended to be, because it was a, a realistic story, and her editor caught it and said, no, this is, this is not going to lend credibility to your story, even though it's a work of fiction. And she said, why not? It's my story. And the editor had to come back and say, no, you have to be accurate 
in you have to be accurate and true to the uh, the context of the story. And in the world of this story, the moon does not rise in the West. <laughs> and I noticed that students struggle with this idea too, that they they want to tell a story, but they don't have the parameters necessary to uh, to make the story believable. Uh, Louis, uh, uh, Louis L'Amour wrote Westerns. And if you are familiar with the West, as I'm sure you are, uh, if you've been around the Western United States, Idaho, Utah, New, New Mexico, Arizona, and so forth, um, you start to recognize places in his fiction. He always got it right. He got the description of the place right. He understood the value of telling a story that's authentic by not giving uh, his characters attributes that would not have existed at that time. And you can see these places, if you travel in the, in the uh, American West, you see these in his writing. And students need to understand that that's a relationship between their writing and how seriously they will be taken. If you're not accurate, if you aren't precise, then people won't take you seriously. And your writing won't be interesting anyway. So we, we, I want to make this link. That's what the read up is all about and the ask around. If you're not certain about something, go ask. Ask somebody else in your classroom, your peers, another expert eighth grader in our eighth grade desk example, or go outside the classroom and email an expert and ask them, find a discussion board on your particular topic and find out. Uh, I, I think this is really key that this is something that good writers do all the time but we make it a mystery to students. And that's not the case at all. That secret to being accurate is, uh, is just as simple as reading widely, reading specifically when you don't know, asking around within your class, outside the classroom, and uh, then double checking your facts because very often, I can't tell you how many times I've written something, later I read it and think, I can't believe I wrote that because I know it's not right, which is where <laughs> editors come in and save us uh, as authors so often. Indeed. Well, and even, you know, thinking about this idea of looking for specific information, thinking about so, so much of the challenge, I think, right now in this age of disinformation and misinformation is that it's not necessarily that the information is outright wrong. There are cases, don't, don't, don't hear me saying there are not cases, but there are so many cases where, okay, in the traditional journalistic model of who, what, when, where, okay, we've got those parts, but then it's the why and the how, and we move quickly from facts into analysis and opinion. And that's where it gets much more difficult. <laughs> and trying to help students understand that um, the words you choose matter when you write, the order in which you present ideas matter, the way things get named, uh, the verbs, uh, the adjectives, those things all make a big difference. And, and getting to that level of granularity and saying, let's look at the way that these two different sources wrote about this same incident. And, and let's look at the words they choose. Let's look at the order of ideas. Let's look at uh, you know clauses and phrases and maybe even get a little sneak, a little grammar lesson in there as well um, about what gets said in active and passive voice and so forth. But then to do that within this broader context, as you note on the infographic here, like digital writing opens up whole, whole new worlds, right? It sounds very different in a podcast than it might in a, a highly produced vlog that you post to YouTube as it might look in an infographic and helping students see those 
um, differences across modes of media is just incredibly important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, we're, we're teaching being credible. We're teaching good writing. We're teaching people, our students, to pay attention to good writing. But we're also teaching them to maybe dig a little deeper and not just the facts. I, this is one of the things that kind of bugs me a little bit is, well, it's a fact. Just because something is a fact doesn't mean it's convincing or that it's uh, not absent other context as well. Mm -hmm. So we want students to get the big picture. And the more you read, the more you talk to others uh, who are knowledgeable, the more you double check your work, the more likely we'll be to do all of those things. Exactly. Exactly. So a couple things to kind of think about as we're, we're coming to the, the end of our conversation. One, I've, I've put most of my guests on the spot a little bit here uh, this season by asking them to narrow down from the dozens of um, colleagues and authors and uh, Twitter users and websites and resources and say, if you had to pick just one, one thing that's on your radar right now that's been particularly useful for you as a go-to resource, uh, who or what might that resource be? Is there anything that comes to mind? Okay. Uh, me on the spot. Let's see, let's see how this flies. I have become increasingly a non-fan of the traditional rubric on a matrix. Mm. And I will tell you why. I think that they're literally thinking inside the box or boxes when we ask students to write rubric. Now I realize I'm exaggerating this a little bit, and of course those types of rubrics have a place, but very often we end up just ticking the box and not providing the, uh, the thinking that went into what makes a good piece of writing. So more and more, I have been using what I call single point rubrics that identify the criteria. They're linked to examples of good, not so good, writing, if it's writing, but other, other types of learning tasks as well. Um, and I've been experimenting also with a sliding scale rubric, but they require thought as to why I, instead of just ticking the box, this was exemplary, this is on point, this one's a little below average. Instead, these require to explain whether we're doing it for ourselves, whether we're doing it for our students, whether we ask our students to assess their own work. And I think that we miss out when we don't trust our students enough to assess themselves and to recognize the qualities. Uh, if, if we make ourselves that authority, then I think we have missed out on creating that trust. We've missed out on, on letting them be the, be the expert when they can be. And that's often more, than, more often than not in my experience. So that's what I would, I would say. Let's think about other ways to assess writing other than thinking inside the box. Let's not just think outside the box. Let's maybe toss the, bo the box aside from time to time. Mm -hmm. You're well, going to get comments on that, I know. Ah, well, and good, we should. Um, and, and one thing that I, I think maybe is a corollary to that, you know, as you just said, the single point rubric and offering the explanation rather than just ticking the marks on the rubric and here's your points and we're done. Again, there are times where that's, that's the best we can do. And, and I recognize that in my own teaching and as well as, and I'm only dealing with, you know, 60 undergraduates. I'm not dealing with 120 students every day. Oh um, yeah. 
so I recognize that there are times and places where the rubric makes good sense. Uh, but I also recognize and appreciate what you're saying in the sense of, hey, maybe for this particular essay, what I'm really concerned about is this. And you either did it or you didn't. And I'm going to give you, I'm not just going to check the box and tell you a good job or bad job. I'm going to tell you what you did well, or I'm going to tell you what you need to improve. And maybe that gives teachers a little bit of permission to kind of, I, again, hesitate to say lighten the load, but to say, you know, I don't have to check for everything all the time. And maybe that, that helps us uh, approach assessment for teachers in a more humane manner as well. Yeah, it, it has to be doable. You know, uh, we don't want an assessment practice that leaves us with no time to teach or that we take home with us stacks and stacks of papers. That's not efficient either. That's in eventually would be detrimental to the process in any, in any case. So it's more uh, along the lines of let's gradually see how we can turn over the process of assessment to the students who are doing whatever the assignment is, whatever the writing task or other learning task is. And the more we do that, the more we release that responsibility to them and oversee it and guide it, but turn more and more of that over uh, to them, the more likely they will be successful, I think, in later writing and in uh, uh, jobs as citizens. I think we miss that point also quite often. We, we talk about college and career ready, but we forget that we want them to be citizen ready also and citizens read and they read competently and they write competently and think through competently the issues that face uh, any, any human endeavor. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So as we come to the close of our conversation, another question I've enjoyed hearing from our guests this season is about your life as an educator and as a writer. Uh, and just to talk both kind of personally and professionally about the impact that writing has on your life and how you would describe yourself as a teacher writer? Um, one of the things that I mentioned earlier on in this uh, uh, podcast that I almost was born into teaching. And I think that's probably true about writing, though it's a little harder to pin where that might be uh, in, in my past. But I remember very vividly before I could write any letters, writing on a chalkboard that was in, uh, that my brother and I had at the house where I grew up. And we would, you know, they were just scribbles, that's all they were, but I can remember that and thinking, I'm writing. And I remember writing newspaper articles because I wanted to and sending them in and letters to the editor, even when I was a kid. So I always thought of myself as a writer. And this has been one of my goals also, and one of the real joys of teaching, uh, that I like to provide opportunities for others. I have written several books at this point in my life because I enjoy doing that. It, 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 I learn as much from the process as hopefully uh, the readers of my books do. But the other part of that is that I've always found a way to include some of my, uh, my students, whether they're eighth graders or whether they're uh, in graduate schools, I think that teachers have some wonderful things to say, but they're a little intimidated by the publishing process, or they don't feel that their ideas are original enough, or yeah, maybe something along these lines. I want to provide a voice or the opportunity for people to have a voice somewhere within a book that I've written or uh, an article that I've written. 
uh, you'll find on the literacybeat.com website that there are actually several uh, uh, guest posts also. And we want to hear, I want to provide those opportunities. Our, our students today are going to be the ones who make the world the better place for tomorrow. I, and I so firmly believe that. So we have to make sure that we provide them the opportunities to, to know that their words matter. And we need to promote and celebrate those with them and for them. Absolutely. Very much agree with you there. And it's amazing to see the work that you're doing uh, with your students and around the world. I thank you so much for all that you do uh, for your students, for your colleagues, and look forward to uh, future conversations. Uh, thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you then and uh, uh, future collaboration for sure. Thank you. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. Or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.